0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray. CHAPTER 11 After nearly six months in the Sea's gorge, the loneliness and inaction of his life drove Duane out upon the trails, seeking anything rather than to hide longer alone, a prey to the scourge of his thoughts. The moment he rode into sight of men, a remarkable transformation occurred in him. A strange warmth stirred in him, a longing to see the faces of people, to hear their voices, a pleasurable emotion, sad and strange but it was only a precursor of his old, bitter, sleepless and eternal vigilance. When he hid alone in the brakes, he was safe from all except his deeper, better self. When he escaped from this into the haunts of men, his force and will went to the preservation of his life. Mercer was the first village he rode into. He had many friends there. Mercer claimed to owe Duane a debt. On the outskirts of the village there was a grave, overgrown by brush, so that the rude lettered post which marked it was scarcely visible to Duane as he rode by. He had never read the inscription. But he thought now of Hardin, no other than the erstwhile ally of Blant. For many years Hardin had harassed the stockmen and ranchers in and around Mercer, on an evil day for him he or his outlaws had beaten and robbed a man who once succored duane when sore in need duane met hardin in the little plaza of the village called him every name known to bordermen taunted him to draw and killed him in the act duane went to the house of one jones a texan who had known his father and there he was warmly received the feel of an honest hand the voice of a friend the prattle of children who were not afraid of him or his gun, good wholesome food, and change of clothes. These things for the time being made a change-man of Duane. To be sure, he did not often speak. The price of his head and the weight of his burden made him silent. But eagerly he drank in all the news that was told him. In the years of his absence from home he had never heard a word about his mother or uncle those who were his real friends on the border would have been the last to make inquiries, to write or receive letters that might give a clue to Duane's whereabouts. Duane remained all day with this hospitable Jones, and as twilight fell was loath to go, and yielded to a pressing invitation to remain overnight. It was seldom indeed that Duane slept under a roof. Early in the evening, While Duane sat on the porch with two awed and hero-worshipping sons of the house, Jones returned from a quick visit down to the post-office. Summarily he sent the boys off. He labored under intense excitement. Duane, there's rangers in town,' he whispered. "'It's all over town, too, that you're here. You rode in long after sun-up. Lots of people saw you. I don't believe there's a man or boy that'd squeal on you. But the women might. They gossip, and these rangers are handsome fellows. Devils with the women." What company of rangers? asked Duane quickly. Company A, under Captain McNelly, that new ranger. He made a big name in the war. And since he's been in the ranger service he's done wonders. He's cleaned up some bad places south, and he's working north. McNally, I've heard of him. Describe him to me. Slight built chap, but wiry and tough. Clean face, black mustache and hair, sharp black eyes. He's got a look of authority. McNelly's a fine man, Duane. Belongs to a good southern family. I'd hate to have him look you up. Duane did not speak. McNally's got nerve, and his rangers are all experienced men. If they find out you're here, they'll come after you. McNally's no gunfighter, but he wouldn't hesitate to do his duty even if he faced sure death, which he would in this case. Duane, you mustn't meet Captain McNally. Your record is clean if it is terrible. You never met a ranger or any officer except a rotten sheriff now and then, like Rod Brown. Still Duane kept silence. He was not thinking of danger, but of the fact of how fleeting must be his stay among friends. "'I've already fixed up a pack of grub,' went on Jones. "'I slip out to saddle your horse. You watch here.' He had scarcely uttered the last word when soft, swift footsteps sounded on the hard path. A man turned in at the gate the light was dim, yet clean enough to disclose an unusually tall figure. When it appeared nearer he was seen to be walking with both arms raised, hands high. He slowed his stride. "'Does Bert Jones live here?' he asked in a low, hurried voice. "'I reckon. I'm Bert. What can I do for you?' replied Jones. The stranger peered around, stealthily came closer, still with his hands up. It is known that Buck Duane is here. Captain McNally is camping on the river, just out of town. He sends word to Duane to come out there, after dark." The stranger wheeled and departed as swiftly and strangely as he had come. "'Bust me! Duane, whatever you make of that!' exclaimed Jones. "'A new one on me!' replied Duane thoughtfully. First fool thing I ever heard of Macnelly doing can't make head nor tails of it. I'd have said offhand that Macnelly wouldn't double-cross anybody. He struck me as a square man. Sand all through. But, hell, he must mean treachery. I can't see anything else in that deal. Maybe the captain wants to give me a fair chance to surrender without bloodshed," observed Duane. Pretty decent of him, if he meant that. He invites you out to his camp AFTER DARK! Something strange about this, Duane. But MacNelly's a new man out here. He does some queer things. Perhaps he's getting a swelled head. Well, whatever his intentions, his presence around Mercer is enough for us. Duane, you hit the road. Put some miles between you and the amiable captain before daylight. Tomorrow I'll go out there and ask him what in the devil he meant that messenger he sent he was a ranger said duane sure he was and a nervy one it must have taken sand to come bracin' you that way duane the fellow didn't pack a gun i'll swear to that pretty odd this trick but you can't trust it hit the road duane a little later a black horse with muffled hoofs bearing a tall dark rider who peered keenly into every shadow trotted down a pasture-lane back of Jones's house, turned into the road, and then, breaking into a swifter gait, rapidly left Mercer behind. Fifteen or twenty miles out Duane drew rein in a forest of mesquite, dismounted, and searched about for a glade with a little grass. Here he staked his horse in a long lariat, and, using his saddle for a pillow, his saddle-blanket for covering, he went to sleep. Next morning he was off again, working south. During the next few days he paid brief visits to several villages that lay in his path, and in each some one particular friend had a piece of news to impart that made Duane profoundly thoughtful. A ranger had made a quiet, unobtrusive call upon these friends, and left this message. Tell Buck Duane to ride into Captain McNelly's camp some time after night." Duane concluded, and his friends all agreed with him, that the New Ranger's main purpose in the Nueces country was to capture or kill Buck Duane, and that this message was simply an original and striking ruse, the daring of which might appeal to certain outlaws. But it did not appeal to Duane. His curiosity was aroused. It did not, however, tempt him to any foolhardy act he turned southwest and rode a hundred miles until he again reached the sparsely settled country here he heard no more of rangers it was a barren region he had never but once ridden through and that ride had cost him dear he had been compelled to shoot his way out outlaws were not in accord with the few ranchers and their cowboys who ranged there he learned that both outlaws and mexican raiders had long been in bitter enmity with these ranchers being unfamiliar with roads and trails duane had pushed on into the heart of this district when all the time he really believed he was traveling around it a rifle shot from a ranch house a deliberate attempt to kill him because he was an unknown rider in those parts discovered to duane his mistake and a hard ride to get away persuaded him to return to his old methods of hiding by day and travelling by night. He got into rough country, rode for three days without covering much ground, but believed that he was getting on safer territory. Twice he came to a wide bottomland green with willow and cottonwood, and thick as chaparral, somewhere through the middle of which ran a river he decided must be the lower Nussies. One evening, as he stole out from a covert where he had camped, he saw the lights of a village. He tried to pass it on the left, but was unable to because the breaks of this bottom land extended in almost to the outskirts of the village, and he had to retrace his steps and go round to the right. Wire fences and horses in pasture made this a task, so it was well after midnight before he accomplished it. He made ten miles or more, then by daylight, and after that proceeded cautiously along a road which appeared to be well worn from travel. He passed several thickets where he would have halted to hide during the day, but for the fact that he had to find water. He was a long while in coming to it, and then there was no thicket or clump of mesquite near the water-hole that would afford him covert, so he kept on. The country before him was ridgy, and began to show cottonwoods here and there in the hollows, and yucca and mesquite on the higher ground. As he mounted a ridge he noted that the road made a sharp turn, and he could not see what was beyond it. He slowed up and was making the turn, which was downhill between high banks of yellow clay, when his mettlesome horse heard something to frighten him, or shied at something, and bolted. The few bounds he took before Duane's iron arm checked him were enough to reach the curve. One flashing glance showed Duane the open once more, a little valley below, with a wide, shallow, rocky stream, a clump of cottonwoods beyond, a somber group of men facing him, and two dark, limp, strangely grotesque figures hanging from branches. The sight was common enough in southwest Texas. But Duane had never before found himself so unpleasantly close. A hoarse voice pealed out, "'By hell, there's another one!' "'Stranger, ride down and account for yourself!' yelled another. "'Hands up!' "'That's right, Jack. Don't take no chances. Plug him!' These remarks were so swiftly uttered as almost to be continuous. Duane was wheeling his horse when a rifle cracked. The bullet struck his left forearm, and he thought broke it, for he dropped the rein. The frightened horse leaped. Another bullet whistled past Duane. Then the bend in the road saved him probably from certain death. Like the wind, his fleet steed went down the long hill. Duane was in no hurry to look back. He knew what to expect. His chief concern of the moment was for his injured arm. He found that the bones were still intact. But the wound, having been made by a soft bullet, was an exceedingly bad one. Blood poured from it. Giving the horse his head, Duane wound his scarf tightly round the holes, and with teeth and hand tied it tightly. That done he looked back over his shoulder. Riders were making the dust fly on the hillside road. There were more coming round the cut where the road curved. The leader was perhaps a quarter of a mile back, and the others strung out behind him. Duane needed only one glance to tell him that they were fast and hard-riding cowboys in a land where all riders were good. They would not have owned any but strong, swift horses. Moreover, it was a district where ranchers had suffered beyond all endurance the greed and brutality of outlaws. Duane had simply been so unfortunate as to run right into a lynching party, at a time of all times when any stranger would be in danger— and any outlaw put to his limit to escape with his life. Duane did not look back again till he had crossed the ridgy piece of ground and gotten to the level road. He had gained upon his pursuers. When he ascertained this he tried to save his horse, to check a little that killing gait. This horse was a magnificent animal, big, strong, fast. But his endurance had never been put to a grueling test. And that worried Duane. His life had made it impossible to keep one horse very long at a time, and this one was an unknown quantity. Duane had only one plan, the only plan possible in this case, and that was to make the river bottoms, where he might elude his pursuers in the willow brakes. Fifteen miles or so would bring him to the river, and this was not a hopeless distance for any good horse, if not too closely pressed." Duane concluded presently that the cowboys behind were losing a little in the chase because they were not extending their horses. It was decidedly unusual for such riders to save their mounts. Duane pondered over this, looking backwards several times to see if their horses were stretched out. They were not, and the fact was disturbing. Only one reason presented itself to Duane's conjecturing, and it was that with him headed straight on that road his pursuers were satisfied not to force the running. He began to hope and look for a trail or a road turning off to right or left. There was none. A rough, mesquite-dotted and yucca-spired country extended away on either side. Duane believed he would be compelled to take to this hard going. One thing was certain. He had to go round the village. The river, however, was on the outskirts of the village, and once in the willows he would be safe dust clouds far ahead caused his alarm to grow. He watched with his eyes strained. He hoped to see a wagon, a few stray cattle, but no, he soon descried several horsemen. Shots and yells behind him attested to the fact that his pursuers likewise had seen these newcomers on the scene more than a mile separated these two parties yet that distance did not keep them from soon understanding each other duane waited only to see this new factor show signs of sudden quick action and then with a muttered curse he spurred his horse off the road into the brush he chose the right side because the river lay nearer that way there were patches of open sandy ground between clumps of cactus and mesquite and he found that, despite a zigzag course, he made better time. It was impossible for him to locate his pursuers. They would come together, he decided, and take to his tracks. What then was his surprise and dismay to run out of a thicket right into a low ridge of rough broken rock, impossible to get a horse over? He wheeled to the left along its base. The sandy ground gave place to a harder soil, where his horse did not labor so. Here the growths of mesquite and cactus became scanter, affording better travel, but poor cover. He kept sharp eyes ahead, and, as he had expected, soon saw moving dust-clouds and the dark figures of horses. They were half a mile away, and swinging obliquely across the flat, which fact proved that they had entertained a fair idea of the country and the fugitive's difficulty. Without an instant's hesitation, Duane put his horse to his best efforts, straight ahead. He had to pass those men. When this was seemingly made impossible by a deep wash from which he had to turn, Duane began to feel cold and sick. Was this the end? Always there had to be an end to an outlaw's career. He wanted then to ride straight at these pursuers. But reason outweighed instinct. He was fleeing for his life. Nevertheless, the strongest instinct at the time was his desire to fight. He knew that these three horsemen saw him, and a moment afterward he lost sight of them as he got into the mesquite again. He meant now to try to reach the road, and pushed his mount severely, though still saving him for a final burst. Rocks, thickets, bunches of cactus, washes, all operated against his following a straight line. Almost he lost his bearings, and finally would have ridden toward his enemies had not good fortune favoured him in the matter of an open, burned-over stretch of ground. Here he saw both groups of pursuers, one on each side and almost within gunshot. Their sharp yells, as much as his cruel spurs, drove his horse into that pace which now meant life or death for him. And never had Duane bestrode a gamer, swifter, stauncher beast. He seemed about to accomplish the impossible. In the dragging sand he was far superior to any horse in pursuit. And on this sandy, open stretch he gained enough to spare a little in the brush beyond. Heated now and thoroughly terrorized, he kept the pace through thickets that almost tore Duane from his saddle. Something weighty and grim eased off Duane. He was going to get out in front. The horse had speed, fire, stamina. Duane dashed out into another open place dotted by a few trees, and here, right in his path, within pistol range, stood horsemen waiting. They yelled. They spurred toward him, but did not fire at him. He turned his horse, face to the right. Only one thing kept him from standing his ground to fight it out. He remembered those dangling limp figures hanging from the cottonwoods. These ranchers would rather hang an outlaw than do anything. They might draw all his fire and then capture him. His horror of hanging was so great as to be all out of proportion compared to his gunfighter's instinct of self-preservation. A race began, then, a dusty, crashing drive through grey mesquite. Duane could scarcely see, he was so blinded by stinging branches across his eyes. The hollow wind roared in his ears. He lost his sense of the nearness of his pursuers but they must have been close did they shoot at him he imagined he heard shots but that might have been the cracking of dead snags his left arm hung limp almost useless he handled the rein with his right and most of the time he hung low over the pommel the gray walls flashing by him the whip of twigs the rush of wind the heavy rapid pound of hoofs the violent motion of his horse These vied in sensation with the smart of sweat in his eyes, the rack of his wound, the cold, sick cramp in his stomach. With these also was dull, raging fury. He had to run when he wanted to fight. It took all his mind to force back that bitter hate of himself, of his pursuers, of this race for his useless life. Suddenly he burst out of a line of mesquite into the road, a long stretch of lonely road! How fiercely, with hot, strange joy, he wheeled his horse upon it! Then he was sweeping along, sure now that he was out in front. His horse still had strength and speed, but showed signs of breaking. Presently Duane looked back. Pursuers, he could not count how many, were loping along in his rear. He paid no more attention to them, and with teeth set. He faced ahead, grimmer now in his determination to foil them. He passed a few scattered ranch-houses, where horses whistled from corrals, and men curiously watched him fly past. He saw one rancher running, and he felt instinctively that this fellow was going to join in the chase. Duane's steed pounded on, not noticeably slower, but with a lack of former smoothness, with a strained convulsive jerking stride which showed he was almost done. Sight of the village ahead surprised Duane. He had reached it sooner than he expected. Then he made a discovery. He had entered the zone of wire fences. As he dared not turn back now, he kept on, intending to ride through the village. Looking backward, he saw that his pursuers were half a mile distant, too far to alarm any villagers in time to intercept him in his flight. As he rode by the first houses, his horse broke and began to labor duane did not believe he would last long enough to go through the village saddled horses in front of a store gave duane an idea not by any means new and one he had carried out successfully before as he pulled in his heaving mount and leaped off a couple of ranchers came out of the place and one of them stepped to a clean-limbed fiery bay he was about to get into his saddle when he saw duane and then he halted a foot in the stirrup Duane strode forward, grasped the bridle of this man's horse. Mine's done, but not killed, he panted. Trade with me. Well, stranger, I'm sure always ready to trade, drawled the man. But ain't you a little swift? Duane glanced back up the road. His pursuers were entering the village. I'm Duane, Buck Duane, he cried menacingly. Will you trade? Hurry the rancher, turning white, dropped his foot from the stirrup and fell back. I reckon I'll trade, he said. Bounding up, Duane dug spurs into the bay's flanks. The horse snorted in fright, plunged into a run. He was fresh, swift, half-wild. Duane flashed by the remaining houses on the street, out into the open. But the road ended at that village or else let out from some other quarter, for he had ridden straight into the fields and from them into rough desert. When he reached the cover of Mesquite once more he looked back to find six horsemen, within rifle-shot of him, and more coming behind them. His new horse had not had time to get warm before Duane reached a high, sandy bluff below which lay the willow brakes. As far as he could see extended an immense, flat strip of red-tinged willow how welcome it was to his eye! He felt like a hunted wolf that, weary and lame, had reached his hole in the rocks. Zigzagging down the soft slope, he put the bay to the dense wall of leaf and branch. But the horse balked. There was little time to lose. Dismounting, he dragged the stubborn beast into the thicket. This was harder and slower work than Duane cared to risk. If he had not been rushed, he might have had better success so he had to abandon the horse, a circumstance that only such sore straits could have driven him to. Then he went slipping swiftly through the narrow aisles. He had not gotten under cover any too soon, for he heard his pursuers piling over the bluff, loud voiced confident, brutal. They crashed into the willows. "'Hi, Sid! here's your hoss,' called one, evidently to the man Duane had forced into a trade. "'Say, if you loco gents'll hold up a little, I'll tell you something,' replied a voice from the bluff. "'Come on, Sid, we got him corralled,' said the first speaker. "'Well, maybe. And if you have, it's liable to be damn hot. "'That fella is Buck Duane.' Absolute silence followed that statement. Presently it was broken by a rattling of loose gravel and then low voices he can't get across the river i tell you came to duane's ears he's corralled in the brake i know that hole then duane gliding silently and swiftly through the willows heard no more from his pursuers he headed straight for the river threading a passage through a willow brake was an old task for him many days and nights had gone to the acquiring of a skill that might have been envied by an indian the Rio Grande and its tributaries, for the most of their length in Texas, ran between wide, low, flat lands covered by a dense growth of willow. Cottonwood, mesquite, prickly pear, and other growths mingled with the willow, and altogether they made a matted, tangled copse, a thicket that an inexperienced man would have considered impenetrable. From above these wild brakes looked green and red. From the inside they were gray and yellow. A striped wall. Trails and glades were scarce. There were a few deer runways, and sometimes little paths made by peccaries, the jabali or wild pigs, of Mexico. The ground was clay, and unusually dry, sometimes baked so hard that it left no imprint of a track. Where a growth of cottonwood had held back the encroachment of the willows, there usually was thick grass and underbrush. The willows were short, slender poles, with stems so close together that they almost touched, and with the leafy foliage forming a thick covering. The depths of this break Duane had penetrated was a silent, dreamy, strange place. In the middle of the day the light was weird and dim. When a breeze fluttered the foliage, then slender shafts and spears of sunshine pierced the green mantle, and danced like gold on the ground. Twain had always felt the strangeness of this kind of place, "'and likewise he had felt a protecting harbouring something "'which always seemed to him to be the sympathy of the brake for a hunted creature. "'Any unwounded creature, strong and resourceful, "'was safe when he had glided under the low, rustling green roof of this wild covert. "'It was not hard to conceal tracks. "'The springy soil gave forth no sound, "'and men could hunt each other for weeks.' passing within a few yards of each other and never know it. The problem of sustaining life was difficult, but then hunted men and animals survived on very little. Duane wanted to cross the river if that was possible, and, keeping in the break, work his way upstream till he had reached country more hospitable. Remembering what the man had said in regard to the river, Duane had his doubts about crossing but he would take any chance to put the river between him and his hunters. He pushed on. His left arm had to be favoured, as he could scarcely move it. Using his right to spread the willows, he slipped sideways between them and made fast time. There were narrow aisles and washes, and holes low down and paths brushed by animals, all of which he took advantage of, running, walking, crawling, stooping anyway, to get along. To keep in a straight line was not easy. He did it by marking some bright sunlit stem or tree ahead, and when he reached it looked straight on to mark another. His progress necessarily grew slower, for as he advanced the break became wilder, denser, darker. Mosquitoes began to whine about his head. He kept on without pause. Deepening shadows under the willows told him that the afternoon was far advanced. He began to fear he had wandered in a wrong direction finally a strip of light ahead relieved his anxiety and after a toilsome penetration of still denser brush he broke through to the bank of the river he faced a wide shallow muddy stream with breaks on the opposite bank extending like a green and yellow wall twain perceived at a glance the futility of his trying to cross at this point everywhere the sluggish river raved quicksand bars In fact, the bed of the river was all quicksand, and very likely there was not a foot of water anywhere. He could not swim, he could not crawl, he could not push a log across. Any solid thing touching that smooth yellow sand would be grasped and sucked down. To prove this he seized a long pole, and, reaching down from the high bank, thrust it into the stream. Right there near shore there apparently was no bottom to the treacherous quicksand, He abandoned any hope of crossing the river. Probably for miles up and down it would be just the same as here. Before leaving the bank he tied his hat upon the pole and lifted enough water to quench his thirst. Then he worked his way back to where thinner growth made advancement easier, and kept on upstream till the shadows were so deep he could not see. Feeling around for a place big enough to stretch out, he lay down for the time being he was as safe there as he would have been beyond in the Rimrock. He was tired, though not exhausted, and in spite of the throbbing pain in his arm, he dropped at once into sleep. CHAPTER